even in those failures, you know, if you really, if you have those big goals and dreams and you really uh, go after them wholeheartedly and you make that challenge something that is so much bigger than you think, even you think is possible and you do fail, uh, it doesn't really feel like a failure. It just feels like you came a long way and it ended. This week on Heads and Tails, we hear from former Green Beret, turned Texas Longhorn, turned Seattle Seahawk, Nate Boyer. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports, health, and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, but you can always control how you respond. This is my response, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. All right, welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week we have Nate Boyer, who's um, he was an aspiring actor, turned Green Beret, turned uh, walk-on long snapper at the University of Texas. Uh, he got picked up by the Seattle Seahawks, and today he's also going to tell us about what he's up to now. So, Nate, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, could you start off by talking about like where you grew up and what, what sports you might have played? Yeah, I grew up in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, my, my dad's a racehorse veterinarian, so I kind of grew up around sports, uh, and, and my, my mother went to, uh, she got her PhD from Cal Berkeley. So I grew up right around there, a big baseball, uh, basketball player as a kid, okay. um, always loved football, never played, but, uh, you know, growing up in the Bay area with the 49ers, uh, when I was young, it was, uh, it was good times. We won a lot. and. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that was, uh, those were my sports. I was pretty, I was really good at baseball. I was pretty good at basketball. Um, didn't have any major you know, scholarships anywhere, anything like that. All right. Uh, but you had an football. athletic background. Yeah, totally. All right, cool. So can you kind of talk about the struggles that you had in school? And I remember in a couple of articles I read about you, you, uh, got in some trouble and stuff. Can you just talk about, you know, those issues? Yeah, I mean. It was just a lack of uh, focus and effort, I think, uh, in, in uh, really committing myself to, to school. I wasn't dumb. I always tested actually really well. I just didn't know how to apply myself and didn't really care to uh, unless it involved the, <laughs> the, the athletic field in some way. Right. Um, and even then, I didn't know how to really practice it was sort of just a lot of dreaming was going on, you know? Why, why do you think you're just like thinking uh, about all this stuff or? Yeah. That's just how my brain works. I'm still like a big time dreamer. I just now later in life, I, I understand how to, how to apply it and what you have to sacrifice to be great at something. All right, uh, I didn't cool. know that then. I mean, I was just a kid, so I just didn't know that. And, you know, as far as the trouble, I didn't get into crazy trouble. You know, I, I got a, I had a run in with the, with the law a couple of times just from, you know, shoplifting and just being a general idiot as a kid. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, so were you dreaming about becoming an actor when, when all this stuff was was going on? Like no. when was so the, the time when... thing, the acting thing's kind of been blown out of proportion. <laughs> that didn't even ever cross my mind until I was like 19. Okay. Uh, and even then I didn't really, you know, I, I graduated high school. I always wanted to be a pro athlete. That was my dream. I graduated high school. I moved down to San Diego and started working on a fishing boat. And uh, I thought I wanted to be a firefighter maybe. You know, but in the back of my head, I still wanted to play 
I still wanted to be an athlete, be a pro athlete in some way. That was just like a dream. Okay. And uh, when I moved up to Los Angeles, I moved up here um, yeah, to, to pursue the, the film industry. I ended up taking some acting classes and, and, and some other things. And, I, you know, I booked one commercial for Greyhound buses a long time ago. But that was really it. I, I wasn't, uh, you know, didn't really work towards it necessarily. I partied a lot and uh, did all kinds of odd jobs out here. I ended up working with autistic kids for a while, which was actually really rewarding and uh, very cool. Cool. What'd you learn and from then, that experience? Uh, uh, just humility. Um, also, I think more than anything, I needed those kids more than they needed me. And I learned a lot from them about, you know, how, how we, everybody looks at the world a little bit different. You know, we all have our different experiences and environments and culture and, uh, I guess, upbringing that shapes us. And, and uh, we all uh, know, even if we're from the same uh, neighborhood, you know, we don't necessarily all have the same values and beliefs and ideas. And those kids, especially, they just, you know, they approach the world in a different way. They see it in a different way. And uh, it doesn't make them, you know, stupid. It just makes them different. They're actually right. quite smart in ways uh, that, you know, the quote unquote normal person aren't. And uh, and they're a lot more sensitive to 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 things in, in you know in the world around them. And it's really interesting. And and they're uh, more than anything, they're they often are, are very loving uh, kids, you know, and they they just crave uh, that companionship. Uh, that they don't they don't often get as much as a a quote unquote normal kid, um, and uh, so I just like to be in a part of sort of bridging those gaps and helping them make friends at school and teaching them sports and you know teaching them that it's okay to be a little bit different and all those things because that's kind of how I felt. Cool. So you said that you almost needed them more than they needed you. So like, why why do you think that you know? that happen you know like everything happens for a reason so like why do you think you kind of fell into that place and like what impact did that have on your future well i just uh you know i took a lot of things for granted and uh i mean we live in a bubble here in america oftentimes um not everybody but but a lot of us where we don't uh we don't see anything you know what do they say you don't see the forest for the trees um we can't see past, uh, you know, five feet in front of us because that's just what we're used to. And a lot of times we don't take into account, um, how it is everywhere else, you know, and, and much of the world, uh, is not, uh, <laughs> it's not like here, you know, we, we've got a lot of things to complain about, but the reason we have a lot of things to complain about is because we have so many things. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's <laughs> and, funny. Uh, you know, there's a, <laughs> There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of places that aren't like that. It's so much simpler, and in a lot of ways, uh, a preferable way of life, <laughs> in my opinion. Even though they don't have this the luxuries and whatnot, um, all those things, all those luxuries, and you know the benefits of living in a in a free country that's mostly thriving, uh, they can also kind of turn against you. Awesome. Uh, so I guess that's a good transition into kind of what led you to uh, Darfur. I, I don't know if I'm saying that right either. But yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. So that that's like a crazy part of your story too. Like, uh, if you could kind of tell that to the audience, I think that'd be it'd be awesome about how you ended up there and what kind of obstacles and challenges you had along the way. Yeah, I uh, 
you know, I, I started traveling when I was in my early 20s. You know, it was after 9-11 had happened, my, my view of the world was quite different. Um, you know, it had a big effect on me. It had a big effect on everybody, I think, that wasn't a, a small child at that time uh, in, in our country. And, uh, yeah, it just... I was so curious about what was going on in the world, and I wanted to get outside of that bubble I was speaking about, and and really um, find my place in the world, I guess. And I st- I was traveling all over the all over the planet. Uh, I would save my money up working, and then I would just travel on the cheap, you know, hitching rides on trains and staying in hostels and whatever. And uh, it was all great. I was exploring, but I wasn't. I didn't have a purpose behind it. So then I, I read this. I was back here in the States and I read this Time Magazine article about the Darfur tragedy and the, the genocide going on in, in Western Sudan. And I, uh, I just made it happen. I bought a plane ticket. I got a visa, flew over there, kind of weaseled my way into the, yeah, to the that, refugee that camps. The you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have, uh, I wasn't supposed to be there. I didn't have the proper deck documentation. I wasn't with any NGO. Um, I tried to go that route, but they all shut me down. So I just, uh, I just was found committed to found, yeah, finding a way to, to help those people in some way. So like, how'd you get the courage to like, you know, pretend like you were a, a doctor without borders and stuff like that? Like I would have, I'm a terrible <laughs> liar. So like, I feel like there's no way in hell I would have been able to do that. Well, that's the problem. I'm a good liar. So maybe that's not a good thing to brag about, but, uh, <laughs> right. no, I, I, I think I just, I think more than anything, I, uh, I was so committed to it because I knew I needed a, a drastic change in myself, right? So right. I knew that that was, that was key. And I didn't even know what that change would be or what it would look like. But I knew I had to put myself in a pretty austere environment where I didn't have any of the comforts, nothing to lean, lean on except, you know, myself. Um, and, and just try to just try to figure it out, just try to make it happen. And and for, and for for whatever reason, this issue that 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 genocide that those people in that country at that time weighed on me more than anything ever had before, and it was just like you have to find a way. There was like a voice in my head saying that, and uh, and I just thought, you know, once I get over there, there's no way they're not gonna let me help out. I mean, if I'm boots on the ground, yeah, turn you around, yeah, yeah, I paid my own way out there. And there's got to be work to be, there's definitely work to be done. I know they were shorthanded at the the camps. It said that in, in articles that I'd read. There was a huge influx of new, of mostly women and children coming in because all the men are all, all off fighting or already killed. And uh, these, you know, the women and children have been, a lot of these children had been you know, taken as soldiers or maimed and the women raped and um, villages burned to the ground, like everything that the what very little they had taken from them like there's there there's got to be a place for me over there to help right so like so what was your biggest obstacle when you got there so like my my podcast is all about uh overcoming obstacles in sports and that's why i kind of loved your story and wanted to get you on because you almost like sought out obstacles you know to get yourself out of your comfort zone so i'm just curious like you know each stage and each you know new journey and challenge that you presented yourself with you know what was your obstacle in each one so what was your obstacle in uh in darfur (laughs) the law and uh my personal safety personal safety 
and language, I mean, language, the language barrier and also, uh, just the danger involved. I mean, I guess I said that personal safety, but, um, and the unknown, I, I knew, I didn't even know what I was getting into. I, as, as much research search as you could do, uh, you know, 12, 12 years ago, it's very different than now. Um, you know, on internet wise. And it was, there wasn't a lot of information out there. There still isn't when I look up those areas, you know, about the villages and the people and how you even get to the camps, you know? Right. Um, so I had to figure that out on the ground. It was a lot of adapting and uh, just being honest, being open and honest and blunt about why I was there to people. Um, sometimes it sort of shocked them and they were kind of confused, but at the same time, once in a while it would strike somebody as like, wow, this guy, he flew from the comforts of America and all that, bought himself a ticket. He came over here, you know, risking his safety. Um, and he doesn't even know how he could help. He just wants to. Yeah, it's know, pretty and that, awesome. That, and that, that amount of passion. And they just, uh, you Genuine, know, enough yeah. people helped me along the way. I, 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 you know, I snuck my way onto a, well, didn't sneak. I convinced him, talked my way into getting on a UN flight that was going out to the refugee camps. Um, and went out there and, and I mean, I got interrogated and all kinds of things, but I just stayed, stayed True open, stayed your, honest. And, yeah. yeah. Awesome. And that it, pays. It worked out. Um, so before we move on from the, the Darfur part of your journey, um, what was like the thing you missed most about the United States when you were there? Probably the girls. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, Honestly, I didn't miss that much. I hate to say that, but yeah, I, I I felt bad that these people didn't get to experience this. I knew I was going home to this great country, and I felt you know, I felt more sad for those people that would never get to experience what, what I was going home to. Um, and they didn't even know, you know, they had no idea how that it, yeah, that it even existed. How, how great probably. it was. I mean, they had they they knew it was awesome. All, all of them wanted would love to be here. <laughs> tell you that much, but. Right. They they just couldn't fathom it, you know, much like I couldn't fathom that place until I went there. And, right. uh, you know, that, that hurt me more than anything. I was just like, man, I didn't do anything to deserve to be an American. I was just born here, you know, right. and, and many of those you did people. did some, some internalizing as a, a young adult there. That's, that's impressive. Oh, um, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it right, shaped so, me in a, in a big way. It's, it's a lot of the reason I, I'm doing the things I'm doing today. That's awesome. Uh, so when you came back, you, you ultimately enlisted in the army and then you became a green beret. So can you talk about, um, your decision to, to do that and to also, uh, and what, what obstacles you, you kind of had to overcome, you know, during the process? Well, I wasn't in great shape physically. First of all, I, I didn't really, you know, I, I hadn't been playing sports at the same level as I was in high school. I played basketball, pickup games here and there, but I didn't really. Uh, I didn't really train much. I, you know, I rolled my own cigarettes. I drank too much, all those kind of things uh, that didn't, uh, weren't conducive to the life of a green beret. But, um, but I had passion more than anything. And once I found out what the special forces did, that the green berets, everything that they do is by, with, and through indigenous forces, uh, in the countries they, they mean to liberate. And that was exactly what I wanted to kind of continue to be a part of because that's what I felt like I did at a small level in the Darfur minus obviously the, the fighting part. Um, but yeah, having that human humanitarian mission as part of the, the mission set of the 
the special forces was uh, appealing to me, you know, and so I, I went into it with this idea that joining the military, I wasn't just going to, you know, be a soldier. Like I was going to be, it was like Green Beret or bust. And uh, I signed up with that specific contract. If I didn't make it through, I would have been sent to, you know, I, I committed to five years initially. So I would have been sent to the needs of the army wherever they needed me. And I would have done it. I wouldn't have complained, but there's no way I was going to quit throughout the training. And it was, uh, I mean, it's, it's the hardest training in the military. Uh, can you kind of talk about what was the hardest part during that training? Like you said that you weren't in the best shape. So was it the physical aspect or was it, is it mostly mental? You said like you went in with the mentality of not quitting. So is that really all, all it yeah, took? I mean, that's what, that's the only reason I made it. It's because I had that mental, I had that mental aspect. I've been to the Darfur. I'd seen these type of people that I wanted to fight for. And that pushed me through because yeah, I mean, when I first got to basic training, like I scored one of the lowest on the PT test in my whole class. And by the end of basic training, I was like the highest scoring guy because of how I worked just in those 14 weeks. And I did that same thing throughout the Q course. I mean, the, the, the hardest thing in, in the special forces qualification course is the consistency every day, you know, putting on that giant rucksack that just weighs on you. And, you know, whether it's land navigation or small unit tactics or whatever, um, seer school, oh, it just never ends. Like you go out there and the, you go out in the in the field for five weeks and train, and then you'll come back and you'll get like a weekend off, and then you're right back out there. And it's just wow, you got to really want it <laughs> because it sucks. I mean, it's they say uh, SF stands for Special Forces, and during the Q course, SF stands for Suck Fest because it is <laughs> that's funny. It's brutal. I mean, and it's just it just keeps coming at you. It's a it's a solid year and a half of just, um, you know, hard training. A lot of it's individual and isolated and, you know, that voice in your head gets real loud and, uh, you got to, uh, you got to ignore it or, or acknowledge it and fight through it anyway, or however you deal with it. But, um, is that because when you're overseas, you're going to be by yourself a lot or is that just um, because you it know, makes it's you just, think more? it's, it's such, first of all, they want self-motivated guys in the, in the unit, right? Every special forces right. team has about 12 guys on it. And that's typically the only guys you work with. So you're, you and your 12 man team, it's just you guys. Sometimes you go do split operations where it's just you and another guy. We rarely, if ever, uh, do anything by ourselves. And that's just, um, so somebody already always has your six o'clock, you know, someone's always got your back. Um, you always got to, we, we, we use the general term battle buddy in the, in the army. Uh, it sounds kind of goofy, but. Uh, it makes sense. You, you don't ever want to be alone. If something were to happen, um, you know, you want that guy next to you to be able to, to treat you in a situation or, 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 or vice versa. And, uh, also, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't cover 360 degrees by yourself. It's just our, our physically, our, our eyes don't work that way. Our body doesn't work that way. Um, it's just tough. So, uh, but the reason for all the individual individualism in the training is because they want a guy that can think outside the box, make it happen, figure it out on his own. Uh, and you get 12 of those guys together and you can really make something special. I mean, a 12 man team is designed to do the same job as an entire conventional unit in the military, you know, because we all have different skill sets and we're able to basically develop and train uh, indig an indigenous force to, um, 
to be effective on the military, uh, you know, in the battle space out there. And those are guys you're taking with very little education and there's a language barrier. And sometimes they don't have that same desire and you have to like mold these warriors uh, from nothing into and, that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a challenge. That's takes awesome. A, takes a so special kind of guy. It sounds like yeah, special forces. Mm-hmm. Um, so exactly. what was the greatest lesson that you learned from being a green beret and how did that kind of help transition into uh, life as a division one college athlete and then also a professional athlete? The greatest lesson I learned is the, the, the key to success in something that challenging and, and, and large scale is obviously, you know, we, we say in the military, always place the mission first, right? So remembering that through the planning process, through uh, when the bullets are flying, all that stuff, the mission first. And for me, the overlying mission within all the specific mission sets, the overlying mission on a trip like that, on a, uh, on a deployment, is fighting for the man on your left and right. You know, doing everything that you do is for somebody else. It's for the guy next to you, protecting him, keeping him safe. You keep that mindset and whether that man is wearing an American flag on his shoulder or he's wearing an Iraqi flag or an Afghan flag, you keep that mindset. It takes the worry off yourself, you know, all the, all the selfish concerns about your own safety, about uh, your own needs and wants and puts them on somebody else. And it's amazing what you can accomplish when you have that mindset, when you know this guy is relying on me. If I don't do my job the best that I can, stay in my lane and uh watch his back and protect him um you know it's going to be it's my responsibility when things don't go right in that in that in that way so and sometimes there's things you just can't control i mean you can't help i've i've lost friends out there and uh and and there's lots of people out there that are, you know soldiers veterans uh warfighters that have lost people and it, there's nothing they could do but i i'm willing to bet you know so many more have been saved because of that mindset because it's about the man on your left and right. And uh, that's, that's what I learned that translated, believe it or not, that translated into football. I mean, in football, I, I ended up long snapping for three years, which is like not a sexy position. It's not, a, it's not ideal, but I found a way to get on the field. And the reason I did that yeah, is because Yeah, one was, of the best you know, football teams in the country too. True, yeah. <laughs> and it was, that. It's because yeah. I had that mindset of like, look, um, this may not be exactly what I want to do, but it's uh it's gonna make the team better you know if if i don't have a per, a good long snap it's gonna affect the punter and if and if the the snap's bad the punt may be bad and that affect that affects field position and it could affect the outcome of the game so what i do i'm not the quarterback but what i'm doing matters you know my job matters exactly and i've got to do the best that i can do for the rest of the guys not for myself awesome um, so what do you, when you walked on at, at Texas, you know, what do you think set you apart from the other guys who are trying to walk onto the team? Age. <laughs> you mean, think that made them like look out for you more or no, do you think I mean, I'm just joking, they, but I was 10, I mean, I was 10 oh, okay. years, I was 10 years older than everybody else. So I definitely, that definitely set me apart. Um, I mean, I, I definitely, I, I also knew, uh, you know, I had life experience going for me and I knew that if I just shut my mouth and went harder than everybody else, it would greatly increase my chances of making the team. Even if I had no idea what I was doing out there, if I was 
going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction, as long as I was going 100 miles an hour, uh, it, would, it, it would help. That's the kind of things that, that people notice. You know, they notice the work ethic and the person that just puts their head down and grinds. And so that's what I did. I mean, that's what I did through the, uh, you know, the tryout process. Uh, and, and I carried that on throughout my career. Obviously, I, I mean, I, I, I opened up a little bit to people and became more accessible. And I mean, I'm definitely one of the biggest, you know, jokers in the locker room and all that kind of stuff. But at the beginning, it was like going into a situation like that around these people, even though I'm older and I've been to war and done all these things. Uh, I haven't earned my, I haven't earned my stripes in this arena yet. And right. the only way to do that is to outwork those people uh, day in and day out around you, you know, and, and, and don't do it. In it and you're not doing it to show them up in some way. It's just to show them how much you care and that it matters to you. And, uh, but I mean, the, one of the biggest keys in going into something new like that is just keeping your mouth shut. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, uh, just, just don't, there's no reason to Yeah. Just like talk, your green man. beret. Yeah. Training, you know, you, you show up every day and do what, you, what you're asked to the best of your ability. And yeah, if it sucks, yeah, don't, don't voice your opinion, but that, that, that's yeah. awesome. And I think that's great advice too, for like any athlete who's trying to make a team or win that starring spot. And like you said, like, just go as hard as you possibly can. And like, that'll set you apart from, from everyone else. I yeah. think that's, I mean, that's people, great. people respect action way more than they respect, uh, words, you know? And, uh, awesome. and that's, uh, that, I mean, that's the way you gotta, that's the way you gotta approach anything in life. I think. Awesome. So, um, we're going to start to wind the, the interview down a little bit. I really appreciate your, your time again, Nate. Yeah, um, so what was your, what was the greatest thing that you learned from being a Texas Longhorn? The greatest thing I learned from being a Texas Longhorn. Um, I played for Coach Mac Brown, right? Yeah, a, a, yeah a I played for Mac. The, I played for Charlie. My I played for Charlie Strong my last year. Um, okay, that's cool too. He's an awesome guy too. Yeah, no, great guy. You know, I you know one big thing I learned for me was that the result is not, uh, I guess, where my where my happiness lies in anything. So oh, I never won a championship. I never won a Big 12 championship or obviously a national championship or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I had a couple seasons there where we, we, we lost a lot of games. But yeah. at the end of the day, I think my most, my most memorable moments, uh, my most memorable games were, were actually during a loss, you know. I mean, I, I had one, one big comeback win in the bowl game in 2012 that we were honoring uh, – a, a real good buddy of mine that passed away. Um, and he was a, he was a green Bray as well. And that was really special. That was a special win for sure. We came from behind in the fourth quarter and we were dedicating the game to him. It was really cool. But my senior year, we, awesome, we, we, we lost to, uh, yeah, it was amazing. But my, my senior year, we lost to Oklahoma in the, in the red river shootout. And, we dominated the game. You know, we gave up a pick six. We gave up a kick return touchdown. But when you looked at the final stat line, I mean, we outgained them by 200 yards. We dominated the line of scrimmage. We just couldn't, you know, we couldn't put it together at the end there to make it happen. And it was a transition year. It was Charlie's first year and really young team, except for me. And, uh, but after the game, the whole stadium felt like Texas had beat the crap out of Oklahoma, even though they lost on the scoreboard. All the OU fans left 
they left the stadium when they were getting, they were bringing the flag out in midfield. And all the Texas fans stayed and they were chanting Texas fight in the stadium. And oh man, I got chills. That's awesome. Yeah, I just, I got emotional at that time. It was my last game against OU. You know, we lost, but it was like, you know, I thought of all kinds of things that had happened in the process and and, uh, how hard we'd, we'd fought. And sometimes it doesn't go your way, but that's not what matters at the end of the day. It's not the result. I think that's a great, you know, message for our listeners too, because. I, a part of the reason why I made this podcast is to help athletes who may have gotten injured or may, you know, have a career ending injury or stuff like that. So, and I think it just like in my example, you know, I didn't reach what I had, you know, worked hard to get towards, which was like play college football and that kind of stuff. But that's, you know, we, it's not about the result, you know, it's about the moments that you had kind of like leading up to whatever it, it might be. Um, all right. So, where do you get the courage to try new things and get out of your comfort zone? Because you've done that, you know, your whole life. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. I mean, that is, uh, my, my comfort lies in discomfort. <laughs> I, awesome. I just, I, I can... love, I love challenges, man. I, I just, they feed me more than anything. And, uh, even if I never make that goal, even if I never attain it, um, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the, it's, it's the grind and, and going for going after it is what really makes me happy. Um, and it's gotta be a big challenge for me. It's gotta be something that I think that I maybe can't do, you know, the back of my head. I've is there this. ever something that you've actually failed at? Cause it seems like everything you set out totally. to do, you, yeah, you go for it. I went, uh, I tried out for the, for the Delta force when I was in the army and, um, and I actually made it through selection. Somehow I got selected, even though I was super young in army, you know, in time, time and service. But during the course, I mean, this is the greatest 300, the 300 greatest soldiers in the world. And, uh, you know, the, right towards the end, they came to me and they said, you're just a little too green. You know, you're too young. You haven't deployed yet. Um, but, you, you know, you did everything you could. And, and so, I mean, I failed. Ultimately, I failed in the NFL. You know, I got cut from the Seahawks uh, in training camp last year. But even in those failures, you know, if you really, if you have those big goals and dreams and you really uh, go after them wholeheartedly and you make that challenge something that is so much bigger than you think, even you think is possible, and you do fail, uh, it doesn't really feel like a failure. It just feels like you came a long way and it ended. You know what I mean? Um, right. So yeah, I guess that's the best way to, to, to. No, that's a that. great answer. That's, that's awesome. Um, so, so once you did, you know, fail at, at those, those things, did you just like think of something else that you wanted to pursue or like, how'd you kind of deal with that failure? Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, a lot of times you got to just redirect all that energy and a lot of times that pain, you know, of not reaching your goal. You know, use that as fuel right. to, 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 you know, to, to, to go after that next one. Awesome. Uh, so last two questions. So actually maybe it's just one question. What's your personal definition of perseverance? Perseverance is, uh, you know, is understanding the obstacles in front of you. And, uh, understanding that they're probably going to be you at some point, uh, but 
accepting that challenge anyway and just and just picking yourself up every day and 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 continuing to go after it you know i mean that's it's not a great uh <laughs> webster's dictionary uh example, no i'm not looking for but, webster's i want i want your definition so yeah, that, that was I mean, awesome that's, that's that's basically it just uh rec- recognizing recognizing how hard it's going to be to 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 reach whatever goal you want to reach and then you know smiling smiling in the face of that challenge and uh attacking it anyway that's awesome um all right so i know in the news you've you've been you wrote a letter to colin kaepernick so you anyone listening to this go go over to the uh show notes for this episode and i'll have the article um posted that was a really cool take on that whole situation um and where else can people find you so you plug your social media um yeah, I mean, I got a I got a website, uh, nateboyer.com. and also I'm on uh, I'm on I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, at nateboyer. Uh, yeah, thirty-seven. At nateboyer thirty-seven. Thirty-seven is my favorite right, number man. too. Thank you, at nateboyer thirty-seven. Sorry, good call. No, it's no, it's all good. <laughs> I, I don't forget that because that was my favorite number. So that's why I was like, when I saw your story, I'm like, oh man, he wears thirty-seven too. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm actually. Um, during Veterans Day, I'm going to post these episodes, and I had another interview with another Green Beret who went to West Point. Um, his name is Ben Haro, and um, he won 37 on the lacrosse team there, too, so we got a bunch of 37s uh, coming up on the, the podcast. That's awesome. 